1: Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: This is the Ocean Protect podcast, talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change.
1: Kathy Willis, welcome back to the Ocean Protect podcast.
2: Thank you, so glad to be back.
0: Where are you calling from today?
2: I'm calling from the University of Washington in Seattle.
0: Wow.
2: it's a place
0: that certainly uh, spawns my heart. Rains a lot in Seattle,
2: doesn't it? Yeah, right now we're in a heatwave. It's about 33 degrees, so staying indoors.
0: Alessia,
1: the air (laughs) conditioner. Yeah. (laughs) We should backtrack. How how did you come to get to Seattle? Because last time we spoke was season two of our Ocean Protect podcast, episode 10, back in May 2020. And clearly, Jeremy and myself, our podcast skills have just skyrocketed since our our last conversation. But it's been a long time since we spoke. But uh, we met in Coffs Harbour at the Stormwater uh, New South Wales Conference back in the day and you were one of the keynote speakers and now obviously you're in, in Seattle so uh, tell us how did you come to land in Seattle?
0: Well what one and a half Obviously, she became famous because of the podcast.
1: Oh, of course, yeah. World tour, world tour. Currently
0: doing a show in Seattle. Yeah. She's going down to
1: Portland, hitting her way down to LA. and then she'll come home. Yeah. Obviously, she has her own TV show now as well. It's like Lunchtime Conversations with Kathy. <laughs> How come you're in Seattle?
2: <laughs> I'm here on Australian-American Fulbright Postdoc Fellowship. So what that is, is a funding body, who you pitch your research project and an American organization who you want to go and work for and work with, and it's an exchange program. So I pitched an idea and have come over to work with the Coastal Observation and Seabird Survey Team at the University of Washington. And so it's a citizen science program that's been running for the last 20 years. And for the past five years, they've um, been collecting data on marine debris. So I came over to analyze that data set and to see what plastic pollution is like in
1: the US. Cool. And before we get into the plastic pollution shenanigans, I'm, I'm keen to geek out in Seattle for a bit because Jeremy says it's close to his heart, but I'm, I'm thinking it's the home of Nirvana, the home of grunge music basically, Foo Fighters, Jimi Hendrix. What's it like in Seattle?
2: It's pretty awesome. I'm not a big city person. I'm from Tasmania, so, you know, I like my small towns, but for a big city, it's pretty, it's been a really fun experience. You know, there's always something happening. Walk out your door and there's a gig always down the street, always live music, and we're on the doorstep of the Olympic Mountains and also the Cascade Mountain Range, so doorstep of adventure.
0: It's also the home of one very famous uh, entrepreneur, Mr. Bill Gates. I uh, went for a run and had to try and have a bit of a perv at his mention, but truth, truth be known, I was actually buggered running past his place because the place <laughs> went for so long. Oh, really? it's, uh, it's a big boy. Uh, but no, I love Seattle. I love Portland as well, where Portland is only, uh, what, an hour or two south. That whole coastline is it's just beautiful. It reminds me of uh, New Zealand, which reminds probably you of Tasmania.
2: Yeah, definitely, especially with like the big fjord system and the mountains, it, I think it is very much like New Zealand in that sense too.
0: But so how long have you been there for?
2: 13 months now, just over a year.
0: And I
1: just realised you're, you're our second guest from the University of Washington as well. So we had Dr. Ed talking about car tire wear and tears, killing coho salmon in Puget Sound. That was a cracking uh, conversation, but not about our father, I guess, we're here to call about, talk about Kathy. <laughs> what exactly are you doing with your research in Seattle?
2: At the beginning, I'm just looking at the spatial trends. So, you know, where are we finding more plastic around the Pacific Northwest, and then looking at it over time. So, are uh, we seeing more or less, you know, rubbish washing up on the beaches along the Washington and Oregon coast?
1: I have read a little bit of your research, so you've given me a bit of a sneaky peek into some of those findings. Could you sort of talk to some of those key research outcomes?
2: Yeah, sure. A really unique part of the Coast Marine Debris Program is that they look at how much rubbish is on the beach, but they divvy the beach up into different zones. So, you know, our surf zone where it gets hit by waves, our rack zone where you see the seaweed and things that get deposited over the tide. And then into a backshore back dunes area. So, uh, what I had a look at was, are we finding, you know, more or less rubbish in these different beach zones? And are there different kinds of materials that we're finding in these areas? We found that, you know, beaches who are, that have more brack zone and more of this back beach area, which we call the wood zone, which is something really unique to Pacific Northwest beaches is that they In the Back Beach area, they just have mounds and mounds of logs and wood that washes up because this was a really, you know, big timber industry and that's, I think, being a hang-up from it as well is that, yeah, these wash-up on storms. So we find these wood zones and the rack zones is where all our rubbish is accumulating because that's where things are getting tangled and trapped. So this gives a nice um, picture for people managing and wanting to clean the beach that, you know, these are our hotspot areas where we might want to target cleanups.
1: How you came across my radar just again, because I've been thinking about getting you back on for a chat because I knew you sort of, Getting around and doing more research, etc. And you have been busy, it has to be said. But you came across my radar again more recently with a, a conversation article. It's a good news story, which I, I love. It's a really good news story. So, people who haven't read the conversation article and the title kind of gives it away. So I won't mention the title. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. Can you tell us about this article and the supporting paper, which is called "Local Waste Management Successfully Reduces," etc. Yes.
2: Yeah, so. Yeah, this was the last chapter of my PhD and kind of the big uh, research project that I was most proud of coming out of my PhD. So we looked at, you know, over the last six years from 2013 to 2019, our local governments changing the way that they're managing waste and putting in different strategies. And are those changes leading to less rubbish washing up on our beaches? What we found was that on average in the councils that we surveyed, that uh, litter has reduced by around twenty nine percent on our beaches, which is a really exciting good news story.
1: In the last six years as well, so that's basically a thirty percent reduction in plastic waste on Australian beaches in six years. Thirty percent reduced in six years. So whilst plastic pollution often is a bit of a doom and gloom, and everyone talks about more plastic than fish by twenty fifty and a garbage truck amended, et cetera. This is a real positive.
2: Yeah, it's a really great achievement and a testament to the work that our local government waste managers are doing to try and you know, reduce our plastic waste entering the oceans. But it should be said that it's just an average. So in some areas and some beaches, we found that actually waste was increasing. So we found on some beaches it increased by 90%. Whereas in other beaches, we found that uh, it was a far better improvement. So in some areas, we saw reductions up to 70%. Wow.
1: What's working? What's been the effective strategies to mitigate plastic waste?
2: Yeah, so we categorized all, you know, there's so many waste strategies that, uh, and interventions that local governments can put in. So we kind of grouped them into three broad areas in terms of who they're trying to target and so, one of these groups was waste collection and thinking about how many bins you know we have at our our houses at the moment. So, councils who increased the number of household waste collection that they had found improvements. So, think about not just our commingle recycling, but some have you know, separate paper recycling, separate glass, separate green waste, and we found that just encouraging. Your residents to be more active and aware about what am I doing with this rubbish and where am I actually discarding it and being more conscious of that is showing to have real success in being better at discarding our waste.
0: You've got local councils that give you like enough bins for, let's say, the apartment block, and then you've got other local councils that are a bit stingy and know that they, <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, no, no, it does yeah. happen. Yeah. You know, you've got, yeah. oh, how big's my green bin? I've got heaps of green waste, I've got heaps of paper. Yeah, I can see how that works. And, and would it also be, seen you know, over the last six years, especially over the last two years, have you seen any, you know, greater reduction as opposed to the first four, just speaking of COVID?
2: Well, unfortunately, our analysis only went up to 2019. So we've actually, yeah, we've missed missed the COVID and, and especially the flooding and things that have happened as well, which can really change how much rubbish we're finding Another great result we found was councils who are encouraging their local residents to be you know custodians of their beaches was also really positive. So getting people to participate in the cleanup so that they have a first-hand experience of it, or even having something like a little hotline or um, cameras in the area just to make people feel like they are being watched or they might be caught if they're going to you know, dispose of the waste inappropriately.
0: Very
1: interesting. So, and I think one of the key things I took away from the paper was the fact that, yeah, education and awareness is great, but it needs to be supported by appropriate infrastructure and I guess, you know, tools for uh, local residents to utilize. So it's one thing to educate the community, but if you don't give them the sort of, you know, the bins to put their rubbish in the, or, or a hotline to call to report um, the cigarette butt flicker or whatever, it isn't as effective. But if you have the two combined, it's a real positive.
2: Yeah, certainly, you know, you've got to get people motivated and wanting to change and then you really have to make it easy compared to their behaviour that they have been doing. So, you know, if it was harder to split our rubbish into different bins or we had to take it somewhere else, everyone would just keep piling everything into the same red lid waste bin. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely about simplifying and getting people um, engaged and motivated about the problem.
0: I like that um, concept, you know, and and just take what you said before, to be able to educate people, but to give them a pathway to contribute, to to take ownership, I guess is what we're saying. That is my local beach. I love it. I want to look after it. And, you know, myself and my household, this is what I'm going to do to do about it. And that's just a small little thing. But then you add that to a community and that's, you know, that's how you get great results. It's really cool that part.
1: And it just brings me to like, because you've probably heard, might have heard us speak at the conference back in the day, Kathy, Jeremy and myself getting up and talking about a zero litter ocean target for Australia by 2040 and I know CSIRO have a sort of more immediate Target, I think off the top of my head is at 90% reduction in plastic waste by 2025. Yeah. Or something like that. It could be 60%, somewhere between 60 to 90%. But long story short, if we can achieve 30% reduction in plastic waste on our beaches in six years, recognizing that, you know, we've had some unprecedented conditions with a pandemic and some floods, which has thrown a bit of a curveball. But if you can achieve 30% reduction in six years, imagine what we can achieve by 2025, 2030, 2040, 2050. So, whilst People often talk about again the the more plastic than going to our oceans and fish whatever by twenty fifty we can can actually turn the ship around and basically get down to essentially close to zero.
2: Yeah, you can really see there is a momentum building, you know, in this space, especially in Australia. We've got you know a national plastics plan, you know, the CSIRO and yourselves are putting investment, and there are many businesses around Australia now looking at this circular economy and trying to you know find. Out, see our waste as a commodity and not to put it in landfill but to find other ways of reducing waste and finding that as a resource
0: oh boy and slant he's smart really like he's he's gone from these <laughs> let's clean up the ocean great idea got heaps of funding then he went shit let's stop it in the rivers so he's created the interceptors and it's mm-hmm. taken way longer than he thought but in that time the circular economy really would have started to, to really roll on. So by the time he's actually extracting the plastic out of the ocean, You'll
1: be able to take the shore and sell it like any other thing. It'll be brilliant. Yeah. Maybe. But it does show also that it does, you know, each place. I know this is, to be honest, we don't want to belittle this, the size of this analysis. This is part of your PhD uh, research. And I remember you You literally ran Australia, like every little nook and cranny of, uh, of the Australian coastline. It wasn't just Byron Bay and Noosa and Port Douglas. It was, you know, every little beach within, I think, hundred each 100K or 200K, which is a long way Collecting this data to assess established trends, et cetera. But it's also worthwhile noting that each place is unique. You know, we are all different. We are each, you know, Bendigo is different to Ballarat, different to Noosa, et cetera. And every place needs essentially almost locally unique solution to plastic pollution. And the reason I say this is because I know you guys have just put together a paper discussing place-based solutions for plastic pollution, which is a hell of a tongue twister. Can you talk to this paper around place-based solutions?
2: Yeah, so the idea is that kind of locally-based solutions. So like you said, if putting a plastic bag ban might not be the right solution or collecting plastic bags and turning them into another product might not be the best solution for, say, every local government because, well, maybe their residents don't actually use a lot of plastic bags or maybe there's an like another option for it. What's really nice is that if we really go at a local government level and look at, all right, what are the hard-to-deal-with-waste items and, you know, how can we secularise those and have a new business model? So we're turning things from instead of that make, use and dispose, we're now thinking about, you know, this hierarchy of, like, can we refuse that, can we reduce them, can we repurpose Recycle is kind of pretty low down, but there are yeah many steps that we can take, and I think that place based is is a really great way because I think you're supporting your local businesses, and more people are likely to jump on board and innovate and have that business model in mind.
0: Yeah, the waste management hierarchy we often you know refer to, and I haven't seen correct them. What we find, you know, it's similar in stormwater. You know, um, every mm. site or every catchment area is different. There's mm. different demographics, different things going on. And we see that in our, in our treatment devices. So, it just makes sense mm. that, you, you know, you guys see that in your research. And it just makes sense, you know, um, whether you're in Manly or you're in Cronulla or you're in mm. the city or you're out, in, out west. It, it, it all would be different. Reason, yeah, really. and then
1: obviously you take look at internationally as well. Like uh, Bali is going to be different to Brisbane, say, for example. So, And to Jeremy's point before around trying to create a revenue stream around solving this problem, you know, dare I say embracing capitalism to solve our plastic pollution woes, uh, to expediate it, that might be a real positive. You know, if, if, if the Indonesian fishermen can make money out of discarded fishing nets, fantastic. That's a great outcome. Yeah, there's so many
2: social benefits from that. We often see, especially around Indonesia, it's the poorer communities and countries that might be loaded with, say, discarded fishing nets because they don't have the capital to be able to discard them or maybe the resources to find a buyer. But now that there's this momentum and investment, that now they have the opportunity to go, all right, we've got all these nets and this person here wants to buy nylon, so let's make that arrangement happen and like you said, the social benefits from it are just
1: amazing. Can I talk about changing tack completely? I know you've done some analysis looking at biofouling on marine debris uh, washing up on the beaches of the, of the Pacific Northwest. And this is getting a little bit more attention. I've never heard about this up until maybe a few months ago. And I know your research is early days, but can you give us some insight as to what you're doing and what you're finding so far?
2: Yeah, sure. So it's another really great thing, actually, about this citizen science program that I've been working with, because, you know, there's lots of citizen science programs out there who are monitoring and recording how much rubbish is on our beaches. But what's really nice about Coast is that they measure all these different characteristics. So one of them is biofoul. So, you know, I pick up this plastic bottle and, hey, I found that it's got a gooseneck barnacle growing on it or it's got a bit of algae. And so they're recording that. And I, from what I know from looking in the literature, it's one of the only programs that's done that. And so it's a really unique opportunity to see, okay, you know, biofouling and plastic pollution. So I guess I should backtrack that one of the risks of, plastic pollution that is coming up in the literature now is that it can act as a vector for invasive species to reach new locations. And a great example of that is here along the Washington and Oregon coast, when the Great Japanese Tsunami happened in 2011, what they found was the amount of debris that entered our oceans then across the Pacific and was landing up on the shores of Washington and Oregon. So they were finding jetties, they're finding boats, they're finding fishing boys, they're just finding all sorts of things that you wouldn't expect washing up. And, of course, the journey that that item takes is months possibly years to arrive on the shore and so it was covered in all different types of species so we're looking at algae and macro barnacles oysters all of these slimy things that you probably don't really like to touch so they were washing up on the shore and so they then have the opportunity to compete with the local species and it could be be bad news because you
0: know invasive species basically we're creating a highway to allow you know invasive <laughs> species to jump on and go hey i'm off to america i've never been there before don't know what yeah. it's like there i might have to go and rustle to get some food or Take over
1: it's- How is this? Like, obviously, we've had boats crisscrossing the oceans for centuries. So, how is, I guess, plastic pollution making this, you know, mechanism of uh, biofuel transport worse?
2: Well, I guess the fear is that because the amount of plastic pollution that it's ex- is exponentially increasing and entering into the oceans, that it could become a bigger problem than what it is right now. So, it's kind of precautionary, I guess. And it's not regulated for shipping containers and shipping vessels. You know, they have certain ballast policies and things, I guess they have to follow. So they're not polluting the different waters and they don't like biofoule because it's not very good. Slows or, them down. Yeah, slows them down. So I guess for them, they might still be a risk, but I guess it's more regulated and controlled for than just, you know, your piece of plastic bottle, or a lost fishing boy that's um, got a few hitchhikers and free riders. Are there any
1: particular vectors, biofowl items that, or organisms that are particularly concerning for people and places and wildlife?
2: No specific for the Pacific Northwest. I can only speak to, say, in Ballast Water and down in Tasmania where we've got this giant orange sea star i think it's called the pacific sea star and so that actually came from ballast water i believe in a japanese vessel and it arrived in the derwent estuary where the hobart sits and it has just gone ballistic and there are so many that it's competing with our beautiful spotted handfish, and so that's a critically endangered species and so this Sea star is, they're a phenomenal animal because you can kind of chop a leg off and that leg can then sprout five legs and actually it's like the hydra's heads, you know, they you know, cut one off and three,
1: wow. three
2: <laughs> grow. So, you know, it's, um, those sea stars can be a bit of an, an issue. I guess that's the fear, you know, that plastic pollution might be a similar vector for these animals to arrive.
0: I never thought of that, and no. I'm sure our listeners haven't. I mean, I know big ships, they get international waters, they pump out sewage, they're bad for the environment, blah, 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 but the ballast side of it is so interesting because, yeah, all ships need ballast, depending on seas, mm-hmm. rough seas. So if you come from Japan and you've got your million litres of ballast on board and you come down into Tasmanian harbour and you're about to go in, you need to ballast up to get into a more shallow area.
1: No, but it is regulated. They don't just discharge it straight to the ocean, do they? Is that, well, there's, 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 yes, is that? Excuse my ignorance.
2: they said that it was the ballast water that, I guess, deposited the sea stars into the estuary. Yeah, the sea star. Is
1: yeah, in. but was that was just an un, uh, like an illegal discharge, wasn't it? I'm sure you're not uh, la- I, 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 don't I don't know. know I, I don't, don't
2: know. know, mate.
0: I don't, I don't know. know. Mate, it's not regulated. <laughs> it's not regulated. It can't There you go. Be. I just... No, yeah, they're excuse they're my ignorance. It, yeah, but, I thought it yeah, was... That'd be
2: like, oh, saltwater makes it ocean. Water. Yeah, I'm sure there's uh, probably a distance that maybe not when the sea stars first arrive. We're going to have to Google it.
1: But yeah, to your point, like the casual ship, uh, yeah, for sure has, a, has an issue. But with all this in- increased plastic in our environment, I- I've never even heard of the theory around uh, plastics being a, a transport mechanism like basically a, a boat for little pieces of biofuel. And you, you look at the extent, uh, the magnitude of, of plastic in our marine environment, um, that potential for that hazard is, is, is significant. I'm particularly thinking about um, the likes of you know, big uh, ghost nets in our oceans like that. They obviously have a huge uh, ability to transfer all sorts of uh, Nazis to foreign shores, basically. So very interesting.
2: Yeah, it's just one more thing to not like about plastic in the
1: ocean, hey? Jeremy's Googling, but we probably need a good news story after that. I recognize there's early days on this research, but it is interesting. It just shows that for me, it's another one of those elements of the plastic pollution pandemic or whatever you want to call it, is that... The research is very new. We're always learning new things about the potential risk and hazard, and generally it's not good news. In fact, it's quite ordinary news or bad news. To counter that, I do know you're actually in the process of writing a book with some good news stories. So we we love good news stories on this show, (laughs) Cathy. So can you tell us about this book of yours?
2: Right. Well, the book is with three others. One is Dr. Denise Hardesty, the other is Dr. Chris Wilcox, and the other is Justine Barrett. And so it really stemmed from Denise and Chris at a UN meeting about waste. And the discussion was really around, you know, what type of really uh, infrastructure can we need to better recycle and collect our waste? And it was very, I guess, Western focused. But at the time, Denise and Chris had also been traveling through parts of Indonesia or other countries and they were noticing, you know, a man standing on the side of of the river scooping up the plastics and collecting, you know, plastic bottles and then carrying that to a processor recycler. And so these really what we call informal waste management sector and in countries such as India, uh, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, South Africa, all of these uh, countries, the informal waste sector, or waste pickers are such a backbone to how waste is collected in these areas and removed from the environment. So with that in mind, they thought, well, there must be some really good news stories out there of where people are taking on and upscaling these informal waste management uh, programs. And so we looked around the world, um, invited different programs to have a chat with us and tell their story. And so this book is a collection of those stories. So we had, I think, 20 programs from 14 different countries and they all tell their story about the informal waste management sector where they might be repurposing, they might just be recycling and they've found really innovative ways of how to deal with the waste.
1: Any examples you can share? Obviously, the book, uh, we do encourage people to buy the book when it comes out, but can you give <laughs> us a sneaky peek of uh, one or two of the chapters?
2: <laughs> one of my favourite uh, stories, I think, is a program called SAS. it's S-A-A-H-A-S, and it's um, based in Pune, India. And what it was is there were waste pickers who were just working on their own, you know, this is the way that they create an income for their family so they can survive. And they started to form a union. So then they had a bit more leverage in where they can go and how much money they could receive for their items. And so they joined forces with the municipality because they saw that what we can do is use waste pickers to collect waste from our households in Pune and reduce the amount of rubbish that was piling up on the streets. Because in Pune anyway, it's really hard. You can't get a You know, it's a dump truck like we imagine with, you know, wheelie bins. You know, they're using carts and they're pushing them through all the different alleyways and collecting waste. And I think this is really exciting because it's upscaled so quickly. It's provided an income and jobs for so many people that are kind of forgotten about. And so I really love that because it just had a really positive social aspect to it and a really positive environmental one.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, we love a good news story. Sorry, Jeremy, did you find out with your Dr. Google?
0: Yeah, I did. I did. I'm a couple of quick. There's clearseeds.org and and just some facts and figures for you. Approximately 10 billion tonnes of ballast water are transported worldwide every year, which is the equivalent to 4 million Olympic-sized swimming pools. Wow. It's estimated 7,000 aquatic species are transferred in ballast water every hour of every day.
1: Wow. One new invasion occurs every nine
0: weeks. So Wow. wow. There
1: you go. BFCs.org. Cool. sounds like a potential future podcast guest, Jeremy, but this has been a fascinating chat. But uh, you've been pretty busy over the last couple of years since we last spoke to you. What, what's, your, what's your plans for the next year or so?
2: Uh, at the moment, I'm working with the Sustainable Communities and Waste Hub, which is part of the National Environment Science Programme. And so I'm working on a project – with University of Tasmania and University of, oh, Monash University and we're working with regional local governments and helping them transition to a circular economy. We're working with Ballarat, I believe, Bendigo and Launceston. The project's just in its second year and I've just come on board to help with the project at the moment and it's pretty exciting just learning about, we're talking with the local governments and trying to get everyone a seat at the table. So we've got our local government, we've got our recyclers, we've got industry, and we're working out, okay, what is the problematic waste for this region? And, you know, who are the innovators, who are the entrepreneurs that we can connect and make a network so this waste is now being circularised and benefiting the local businesses and communities?
1: Is that something these local communities have had to apply to this group? to you know facilitate or the, as the sort of that this uh, group contacted these local government groups and said hey can we help you out.
2: Yeah, I think the primary investigators have had a few I guess local governments in mind who might be already quite active in this space and so the idea is you know how can we be a broker in that transition and can we facilitate these transitions happening more rapidly and at bigger scale. And so then hopefully, you know, building a framework that then we can take to the next local government or other people who might be wanting to do the same thing. So I think they just reached out to those who are already working in the space.
0: Speaking of local governments, you've been in uh, Seattle now for 13 months. What's your take on the local government scene compared to Australia? When I say scene, you know, how are they with their waste management? How are they with their stormwater management? How are they with mm. their education could you shed some light? And You know, I'm sure that they'll do some positive things and, and get to us and it'll be a bit of that. But could you talk us through a bit of what you've seen so far?
2: Yeah, it's actually been um, a really big learning uh, process, trying to figure out how things are controlled here. Because it's not like in Australia where, you know, we have our set little local government area and they manage it. We have... Here for example in Seattle we've got the King County but within that is also Seattle City which control their own waste even though it's a little pocket within King County which is a much bigger area and then there might be Tacoma City that has its own. So you know it would be difficult for me to try and do the same analysis that I did in Australia because there are so many other actors at play that are very close together managing waste at different scales and so Yeah, it's been quite complex to try and understand what they're doing. In terms of um, policies or, you know, activities, the Washington state just implemented a plastic bag ban, which has been really great. So hopefully maybe in like a year's time I could come back and see whether we see a response in the same data set that I've been analysing to see if we see the proportions of plastic bags reducing on our beaches. Yeah, otherwise it's um I feel like the momentum that we have in many places around Australia isn't necessarily the same as what I get a sense of anyway here in Seattle. We've
0: got a good friend Jim Lenhart lives down in Portland and I mean, Washington certainly are pretty progressive when it comes to stormwater management anyway. You know, uh, Ocean Protect and uh, our, our partners over in the U.S. Contact, their original head office or stormwater management's head office was out of Portland. You know, the people sort of tend to care a bit more over there, so I sort of found. I mean, well, it's to say they're a bit more greenier. But no, it's just interesting to, to hear because it's so complex in the U.S., You know, you've got regulators everywhere and you've you've even got the ability in the U.S. to sue people. So there's a lot of court cases, but, oh, gee, my river's out polluted. Anyone can go and sue anyone about that. So, you know, you sort of generally see a bit more responsibility because people are worried about it because their livelihood's at stake. Where down in Australia, you obviously, and and, and New Zealand and most parts of the world, you can't just go sue anyone for anything. So, no, it's just implicit to, to, to hear. I mean, I love Seattle, I love Australia, but um, I do know it's a little bit more complex
2: over there. Yeah, certainly, yeah.
1: Speaking of Seattle and Australia, I, are you coming back? Are you leaving the familiar shores of Seattle and returning?
2: Yeah, uh, mid-September, I'm back on a plane, but uh, headed to Australia. But on my way, I'm stopping off in Busan in South Korea and going to the 7th International Marine Degree Conference.
0: Oh, Which wow.
2: is super exciting. That only happens every four or five years. The last one was in 2018, but down in San Diego. So uh, it's really exciting because it's the biggest conference around plastic pollution, marine debris. I always find them a bit of like a festival because it's really exciting. You get to see all the research. It's very geeky, but uh, get to <laughs> hang out with all the researchers.
0: <laughs> that's the zone that we do this by face uh, on whatever
1: but I can just see Brad feeling going Jeremy we're off to South Korea <laughs> <laughs> I don't know like uh, often conferences are a bit, are a bit of a junket they often in exotic locations I'm thinking South Korea wow I don't know <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Korea would be-
1: Okay, there you go. Look, it's it's not Hawaii, put it that way. So, uh, <laughs> Look, I, I feel as though we could talk about it. Look, I, I think we actually haven't mentioned the last time we spoke, you were going to submit your PhD, August of that year. So can we now officially call you Dr. Kathy Willis?
2: Yeah, you can. Yeah. How cool is that? <laughs>
1: Pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, and is your plan to stay in this sort of researchy sort of – it's kind of applied science. A lot, a lot of uh, CSIRO-based uh, research is very much uh, applied science. So whilst you're sort of in the scientific realm, it's very much industry-focused and, and problem-focused. So what's your plans over, you know, career-wise? Like, are you thinking you're not going to work for local government? In I'm, I'm guessing you're not going to work for Bendigo uh, Council. Um <laughs> But uh, as a full-time employee, but what are you thinking? You might be looking to do over the next oh, you five, 10 a big years. Yeah, aren't yeah. You? It's like a job interview. <laughs> Kathy, where do you yeah. see yourself in five to ten years?
2: Big questions for big Get my notes out. Um, <laughs> I love working in this space. Kind of got hooked. You know, it's a problem, and I'm pretty dedicated to trying to find solutions. So I. Really love working in the applied space where there's an end user to the re- research that you're doing. Really motivates me, and it's, you know, you get to see it in action once it's happened. So, for me, I'd love to keep working in the applied area, whether that's with a university, whether that's with an industry research organisation like CSIRO. I'm not quite sure yet. At the moment, just working with this sustainable communities and Waste Hub. But uh, we'll see where things go down this path. But uh, I'm really passionate about helping our local areas find solutions to their waste. So whether that's through a circular economy, whether that's through another um, avenue, we will find out, I guess.
1: Can we just say science is actually really cool? We have so many guests on our podcast who are scientists. In all seriousness, like I think the generalisation around scientists is that they're sitting in labs and, and lab coats and you know toss around beakers and and spreadsheets and stuff like that. The ones that, in my experience, have just been a the most generally the most passionate of people, but b um, really good communicators. And I think I guess the just the skill set of scientists has really changed over the last decade or so. Uh, to and at least the ones where we've sort of encountered, Jeremy, not always the ones on our podcast, but certainly uh, like I, I just want to. Do a shout out for scientists, basically. And I think one point I'd like to make is that a lot of your research is based on data collected by citizens, so citizen science. There's an article just recently talking about how valuable and actually also how accurate that that those data is. Just because it's not collected by a degree qualified scientist, the community, the citizens, are actually doing a great job of collecting a very robust, high quality data set. So I guess I'm saying if even if if you're not a, a scientist, there's a really opportunity to contribute to the scientific community to help solve the problem of pla- of plastic pollution and other problems as well.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and it just shows that people who are involved in citizen science programs just are that more engaged and willing to um, make a difference. And I, I really love it. Can't wait to get back to Australia and try and citizen science wherever I can.
0: <laughs> That's such a point that you said, Nick, right? I mean more and more focus has been put on the environment. So more discussion, more data. And uh, I was watching the news the other night. It, it, it occurred to me that, you know, the, the normal standard of news in Australia. It starts off with, oh, really shocking stuff, and then it goes to local stuff, and then you go to sport, and at the end you go to weather. And weather's, <laughs> you know, weather's usually about five minutes long. I looked through this one hour-long episode and counted how many articles or how many news stories had to do with weather or climate change. Mm. Well, it was nearly half the news broadcasts Mm. would have been put under weather because Mm. every leading story is a flood or Mm. a fire Mm. or snow or this or extreme climate events that are going on. All of a sudden, the weatherman's on on the news. You know, <laughs> the most you know half yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah. But it's just interesting to see where it's going because obviously the the ice has broken off. I mean, there's so many stories now on the news. And if you go, well, it's climate well, change. It, you know. mm. It's, mm. it's times are changing, and um, mm. as you said. Scientists are starting to become cool, mate. But you don't
1: have to worry about that practice. You're not a scientist. You don't have to worry about being cool. <laughs> <laughs> Low risk of being cool is, is I. We should let Cathy get back to her wonderful research. But Cathy, I'm sure Jeremy could attest. It's been wonderful seeing and, and talking to you again. Keep up the amazing work that you're doing. It's so interesting and uh, very valuable to help us. Save the planet, and 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 I'm sure Jeremy and I said many times we when we get up and do talks, etc. We rely so heavily on the research that's coming out of your team at CSIRO. So Denise, Chris, Justine, yourself, obviously, there's so many others. And and so from that regards, thank you so much for the work because it makes Jeremy and me look smarter than we clearly not.
0: <laughs> <be smarter. Can't laughs>
1: smarter, <don't> look. <laughs> but yeah, so thanks. Uh, thanks for all the wonderful research. You just keep it up and. I look forward to uh, catching up with you soon in person. Yeah,
2: can't wait. Maybe in two years' time we'll have
1: this chat again. Boom, boom. Maybe South Korea. <laughs> <laughs>
2: can't
0: wait.
1: <laughs> boom, boom.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.